Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got one of our Bibles, it starts on page 1068. And if you're a mom, you know this better than anybody, but parenting can be a little bit overwhelming, right? And uh, I can remember a particular story of when I felt, this is probably the most overwhelmed I've ever felt as a parent. And so Hannah was like four years old, I think, four or five years old. We were visiting uh, Cam's parents up in Perrysburg, Ohio, and it was wintertime, and we wanted to go sledding. Okay, you guys remember the story now. <laughs> and, and so this is, I think, maybe the first time that we took Hannah sledding. Do you remember, Cam? I think it was the first time she had ever gone sledding. And I mean, I love sledding up in northern Ohio. The, the snow is really good. And we would go sledding every winter. It was one of, my, one of my favorite things to do. And so I wanted to take Hannah sledding and to enjoy what I used to enjoy as a child. And so I can remember taking her up the hill and we got on the sled. I put her on my lap and we went down the hill and she's just laughing. And we got to the bottom of it and just huge smile. I was like, this is awesome. And what, we stand up and we turn around. And before we can blink, this little kid on a saucer come and, comes and wipes us both out. <laughs> we go flying in the air. And I see out of the corner of my eye, Hannah's face goes right into the snow. And so I jump up real quick and I, I scoop her up and I, I'm like, oh, are you okay? And she's immediately, she's crying and I see a little bit of blood on her lip. And, and so I knew immediately, okay, this, this uh, sledding trip is over. <laughs> and so we, we run to the, to the van and, and Cameron was there and, and Hannah's crying. And, and she starts, and then it starts getting weird, Okay. Hannah starts asking questions over and over like she had never asked them before. She's like, Dad, what happened? And so explain to her, and, and like a couple minutes later, she asks the same question again like she had never asked it before. And then she start, said, said things to us, gave us information like we had never heard it before, like, Dad, my, my lip's bleeding. And then a couple seconds later, she would say, Dad, my lip's bleeding. Like, I had never, and at first I was a little bit annoyed. Like, Hannah, I've heard, you told me this already. I know that you're hurting. We're going to get through this. But eventually it became so weird that we started realizing that, okay, her short-term memory doesn't seem to be working quite right. And so we took her back to Kim's parents' house, and I sat her down, and I remember saying, okay, I'm going to point to three objects in the room, and I want you to tell me what the three objects are. And so I point to three objects, and I say, Hannah, what were the three objects? And she can't remember them. And immediately, my mind goes to like worst case scenario. And I think that was soon after uh, Finding Nemo had come out. And so I'm thinking, Dora, my, my daughter is going to be Dora for the rest of her life. She has no short-term <laughs> memory. Dory, not Dora, Dory. Dora the Explorer, Dory. It's all, it, when you've got little kids, everything becomes fuzzy and... So anyhow, yeah, Dory, the, the little fish that can't remember. And so in that moment, though, I'm thinking, gosh, what? I've broke my child. Okay, when, Later on in life, when they ask her, did your parents drop you on your head, she's going to be able to say, yes, not only did that, they slammed my head into the mountain. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I should not, I, I'm not qualified to be a parent. There's no, who would put a child in my possession? What am I doing? I have no idea what I'm doing here. I was completely overwhelmed. And I think as parents, if we're honest, we have moments like that. I mean, your house is noisy, 
Piles are growing. Nobody seems to be picking up after themselves. Laundry is relentless. You, you just uh, broke up another fight. The, the, the schedule in the week just looks impossible. Your two-year-old won't eat what's for dinner. Your, your teenager seems embarrassed that you even exist. You, nobody seems to be happy, and you feel just completely underappreciated. You're, you're busy doing things, and often they're good things, but you, you forget why you're even doing them. You feel swallowed up by the daily grind. I hope I'm not just describing my house. I think we can probably all relate to that a little bit. Uh, but I'm, here, listen, I'm convinced that the solution to our feeling overwhelmed as parents is not simply learning new parenting techniques. As helpful as those can be, what we need more than that is a better perspective. We need a gospel perspective. And so today, in this passage, we're going to be talking about how the gospel shapes us as parents. And even if you're not a parent or or you're past that stage in life, I I think there's principles here that will impact every, every relationship that you have. And so my goal is we're going to walk through this passage, I'm going to explain it, and then we're going to talk about how this gospel message in this passage shapes us as parents. And and this passage is not about parenting, okay? This passage is about the gospel, because that's ultimately what we need. And so the context of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is Paul is writing this letter to this church in the city of Corinth. And the city of the Corinthians was a wealthy church, or wealthy city, and, but they were a lot like Las Vegas, okay? They were well known for their immorality, and so the city has influenced the church, and so Paul has been writing letter after letter to this church dealing with problems within the church, problems like uh, immorality, sexual immorality, divisions, legalism, abuse of spiritual gifts, misunderstandings about the basics of Christianity, even the gospel, and, and basics like the resurrection. They, they didn't have a good understanding of the resurrection. And so here he's recapping the gospel as he's laying a foundation for all of his ministry. And so let's pray, and then I want to I wanna walk through this together. Father, right now I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see your glory, that we would be amazed by you, that we would adore you, that you would stir our affections towards you, and we would, we would know you better, that we would know you as Savior and Lord, and we would trust you, and that we would know ourselves better also, and what you've called us to be as parents. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to read, read through the whole passage, and then I'm going to walk through it step by step. So starting in verse 14, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if 
anyone, I love this verse, this is a verse you put on a mug, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Before, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, key word there, reconciled us to himself and gave him or gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, listen to this, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the heart of the gospel right there. Let's walk through this together, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. And so the love of Christ, is that our love towards Christ or is that Christ's love towards us? Trick question. Yes, it's both. It's, it's both. It goes both ways. Okay, It can go our love towards Christ. It's, it's our relationship with him is what controls us. And that word control, maybe your translation says compels or constrains us or urges us on. His point is the love relationship that we have with Christ does more than just simply influence us. Jesus is not just nudging us in the right direction when we understand the gospel, when, we, when the significance of the gospel opens the eyes of our hearts, he captures our heart. He makes you a new creation, the text says. You're born again. The, God fills you with his spirit and he controls us. He compels us. And the text says because of this, because we have concluded or we've been convinced of this one thing. That one, talking about Jesus, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. One has died for all, and therefore all have, di- all have died. That's the gospel, right? Jesus dying for all, first of all, does not mean that he's saved everyone. He's, he, Paul's not preaching universalism here. He's, he means Jesus died for all kinds of people. Uh, Gentiles and Jews alike. And this is what captures our heart. This is what controls us, that he loved us so much that he was willing to pay the price that we deserved, that he died in our place, the death that we deserved. And for those of us who have trusted in what he's done for us on the cross, that we're united with Christ, we've died. We've all died to our old ways. We're a new creation. The old has died. And notice the purpose of, of Christ's death in verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so here we see the nature of sin. Sin by its nature is selfish. Sin says, I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. I'll do what feels good good and feels right to me. But Paul is saying we no longer live for our selfish, sinful natures. We no longer live for our flesh. We are controlled by something else, by the love of Christ. Look at verse 16. So from now on, therefore, we regard 
no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And so in other words, he's saying we no longer look at others through a worldly perspective, through, through a sinful, selfish point of view. Okay? We view others with gospel eyes. We have gospel lenses that we put on our eyes. And so even Jesus, we l- used to look at him as maybe just a, another guy, a good teacher, maybe even a prophet. Maybe we looked at Jesus as kind of a genie that we would ask wishes from. But now we look at Jesus through the lens of he is our Savior, he is our treasure, our greatest treasure. He is our Lord. He is the one that we follow and obey. And listen to how Paul now views those who are in Christ. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a whole new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Why? Because they no longer live for themselves, but they live for Christ. They have a new life, a new identity, a new purpose, a new mission, a new destiny, new hope, new passions. And so in verse 18, this is huge. All of this is from God. Not just part of it. All of this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us, again, key word there, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that, that is in Christ God has reconciled or was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, this is what it means to be reconciled, not counting their trespasses against them. So we had to, he had to get rid of that barrier, that sin barrier, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so Christ, when he atoned for our sins, when he pays the penalty for our sins, he reconciles us from God, but he does that for a purpose, not just to bring us back into a right relationship with God, but also to give us a mission to have a message of reconciliation for others. In other words, he saves us to be able to proclaim the gospel to others. And so therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so we're going to talk more about what it means to be an ambassador here in a minute. In verse 21, though, we see how God reconciles us to himself. Again, verse 21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. That should never get old. That should never get boring for us. The fact that there is a great exchange, that we we're sin, but Jesus became sin for us, and he gave us and made us to be righteous in God's eyes. And so this is the gospel. This is what should shape every aspect of our lives, every relationship that we have. And so today we're going to wrestle specifically with how does this shape our parenting? Well, first, it helps us to diagnose the real problem. And secondly, we're gonna, it helps us to recognize that we have zero ability to solve that problem apart from the grace of God. And then thirdly, we're going to see that it reveals the role that God has given us as parents. All right, so that's kind of the outline of where we're going to be going as we look at this passage a little bit more in depth. Uh, the first one, again, it helps us to diagnose the real problem 
we need to recognize that the real problem is not simply our child's behavior, but the condition behind the behavior. Okay, so if you're taking notes, let me say that again. We need to recognize that the real problem is not simply our child's behavior, but the condition behind the behavior. And so all of their disobedience, all of their arguing, their at times laziness, their irresponsibility, their complaining, their, their foolish choices are fruit of something deeper. And if you don't understand the deeper issue, you're going to end up just treating the symptoms and not the underlining cause. And so the underlining condition, of course, is their selfish, their sinful hearts. That's what we've got to deal with, and that's what separates them from God. This is why they need reconciliation. So our, our kids' ultimate problem is not behavioral, it's spiritual. It's not horizontal between us and them, it's ultimately vertical between them and God. And so they don't simply need behavior modification, they need heart transformation. They need to be reconciled with God. Author uh, Paul Tripp, the same guy that... Uh, we watched the video for the, the marriage counseling. Uh, super helpful. Uh, he's got a great book on, on parenting that I'll mention later, but he talks about that every child has bought into two lies. Every child has bought into the lie of autonomy. Okay? They, they believe that they are completely independent human beings, and because of that, they think that they have the right to live their life however they want to live it. Okay, you see this, that, that battle with your, with your toddler about eating the food that's on their plate is not about diet, it's, about a, it's a battle for autonomy. They're, they're saying, I want to eat what I want to eat when I want to eat it. And so when Liam throws his food across the room, it's not about his taste, it's about his autonomy, that he wants what he wants when he wants it. He's defending his own autonomy. Children have a natural resistance to the rules. And, and so the key for parents is for us not just to be satisfied with winning those little battles when we get, we get them to do what we want them to do. Okay? That, that's not enough. We, we can't be satisfied with that. We need to constantly be seeking to address the heart issue behind those behaviors, that, that's underneath those behaviors. Okay, so lie number one is autonomy. Lie number two that every child buys into is self-sufficiency. And so this lie believes that I already have inside of me everything that I need. Okay, I don't need your help, mom. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your correction. I don't need to be rescued. I don't need to be reconciled. And so this manifests itself at really all ages in different ways. It manifests itself when, when we put Liam into the car seat and he says, I do, I do, and he's trying to buckle up his own car seat, even though he can't really do it. Uh, it happens when you have a teenager and they're like, I know, Dad, when you're trying to impart them some wisdom, okay? And you can elbow your, your teenager if you've got them next to you. The, the, the truth is, None of us are autonomous. None of us are self-sufficient. Every one of us needs parental care. But our children, because they have this heart condition, they're going to fight against those things. They've bought into these lies, and it plays out in their behavior. And so this means as parents, our, our children don't simply need to be told what to do. 
They need to see something differently. Okay? They need help seeing something. So it's not about just telling them what to do. It's about helping them see the truth. We need to, to look for ways to help them understand the underlying heart condition that is causing the bad behavior. Okay, so this brings us to our second point, though. Okay, you, you know the saying that you can bring a horse to water, but you can't what? You can't get them to drink. Okay, you can teach somebody, you can tell them the truth, but you can't force them to believe it. And so point number two is that we need to recognize our utter inability as parents to change our child's heart apart from the grace of God. Verse 18, we saw that all of this is from God. What's the all this that he's talking about there? You look back in verse 17, and it's, that's the, the, the famous passage on the new creation, that the old has gone and passed away. It, it, we've got a new, new life. He's talking about transformation here. And so Paul is saying that all of this is from God, that you can't tra- transform your own heart. It's got to be from God. And so if you can't transform your own heart, what, think, what makes you think that you can transform your child's heart. This means that we have no power to change our children, which sounds defeating at first if you don't trust that God has the ability to change your child. And think about it. If you could change yourself or if you could change your child's heart, there'd be no need for Jesus to come. There'd be no need for the cross. There'd be no need for the resurrection. But the fact that he did come to accomplish what we could not accomplish proves that we can't do it on our own. So listen to this. Parenting is not about exercising your power to change your children. Parenting is about your humble willingness to participate in God's work to change your children. Let me say that again. Parenting is not about exercising your power to change your children. Parenting is about your humble willingness to participate in God's work to change your children. God has not given you power to do that, but he has put you in a position to be a helper for him to change them. Now, I understand that it's it's by our nature. We don't just want the position, though. We want the power, right? I mean, I like to be sovereign. I like to be the king of my castle. And so what do we do? We often try to manage our children's iniquities. We, we try to manage our children through rules and through threats and through consequences, through rewards, through manipulation, through fear tactics to get our children to do what we want them to do. And it, it's very possible that we are able at moments to use these tools to, to scare or to reward our children into temporary change. But how often, as a parent, have you felt like you're beating your head up against a wall because you've had to address the same issue over and over and over again? It's because you don't have the capacity, you don't have the power to change their heart. And that's the condition under the behavior that's causing the behavior. You might be able to temporarily temporarily change their behavior, but that's not going to equal lasting heart change. And so if you understand the depth of our depravity, if you understand the depth of the sin that's in all of our 
hearts, you're going to recognize that you'll never be able to come up with enough rules. You're never going to be able to come up with enough systems of control to be able to change their hearts. It's just, it's not what we're designed, that's not how we're designed. Uh, In fact, Scripture teaches that even the law of God doesn't change us. The law of God is there to remind us that we're sinners and to point us to the need of salvation. But it's the grace of God that changes us. It's not the law that changes us. It's the grace of God. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And so let me make it clear. The gospel is not teaching us to be permissive parents, to let our kids do whatever they want to do. That's not what grace says. Grace doesn't call right wrong. Grace addresses the wrong in a way that, that, teach it, that, that says, look, I recognize that I have uh, the only authority that I have is a God-given authority with my children. And I don't have the power to control their hearts or to change their hearts, but I'm going to rest in Him. And so I'm going to exercise that authority that He has granted to me, and I'm going to try to reflect His gracious authority and point my children, their hearts, to Him. But I'm going to rest in Him. And man, there is freedom when we do that. There, there is freedom when we are convinced that we are utterly unable to, chill, to, to change our children's hearts because this is what it does. It, it takes the burden off of us. That We recognize that, the, that our, the welfare of our kids is not solely up to us. And that is huge. When you can wake up in the morning and recognize that these children... Yes, God has granted and that he's gifted them to me to care. But he ultimately is the one that's going to change their heart. I am just a steward here. There's freedom in that. You don't need to bear the whole burden of your child's welfare. You don't have the ability. God doesn't call you to do something that you can't do. And so, remember, God loves your children. I mean, think about this. This is the other good news about this, is that God, He loves your children infinitely more than you do. He knows your children infinitely better than you know them. He knows exactly what they need and when they need Him. And He wields the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to convict their hearts and stir their affections towards Him. You don't have that power, but He is more than capable of doing that. And he delights to do that. That's his, that's his joy. His greatest joy is to give us his kingdom, right? That's his great pleasure. God will never turn his ear away from your cries for help for your children. He delights to transform their hearts. He delights in giving them new birth. He delights in reconciling the prodigal child. He delights in doing for his children what they can't do for themselves. And so listen, the gospel teaches us to humbly admit our inability and to confidently rest in God's powerful grace, in His ability. And so the question this morning is, how are you doing with that? Is your parenting driven by by fear? 
Or are you resting in God's powerful grace? And I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anybody else here. More than anything, I think this should impact our prayer lives. If we really believe that God is the one who changes their hearts and he is the one that is able to do that, our prayers for our children should reflect that on a daily basis. Well, there's another important way that the gospel shapes our, our parenting. and It shapes our identity. Okay, that's point number three if you're taking notes. It's very identity. It shapes how we view ourselves, where we find our significance, where we find our self-worth, which shapes our motivations. It fo- shapes our focus, our purpose, our goals. Your identity impacts all of your life, how, how you dress, how you carry yourself. Your, it, it impacts how you spend your, your money, your, your time, your resources. It impacts every interaction you have with another person and especially affects how you interact with your kids. Often when we think about our identity in Christ, we talk about things like the new life, that we're, that we're, that we're given a new birth, that we're adopted, right? We talk about our identity in Christ as, okay, we're God's children. We used to be his enemies, now we're his children. We, we talk about the acceptance we have in Christ. We talk about the freedom we have in Christ. Very few times do we talk about what this passage tells us we are, that we're not, we're not just, yes, we're free in Christ, we're adopted in Christ, we're accepted in Christ, we've been, we're made alive in Christ, but no, well, what else? We're ambassadors for Christ, That's a big part of our identity as Christians. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. As a parent, you are are an ambassador for Christ. And that is huge if you you get that. Because often, a lot of the dysfunctions in our parenting, the frustration that we have in our parenting is because we look at ourselves as kings or owners rather than ambassadors. And we may never express that outwardly, but internally, often, unconsciously even, that's our perspective, that these children, they belong to me. I'm responsible for them. And so I, I, I need to parent them, and I can parent them however I want to. And so in the chaos of everyday life, it's easy for us to forget our role and what parenting is really all about. And so let me describe what ownership parenting looks like, because this is the, the, I think the default that we all, and so there's, there's going to be this wrestling match between being an ambassador towards our kids and being an owner of our kids. And that's a constant battle within our own hearts as, as parents. But we take on this ownership mentality, and it's not necessarily abusive or destructive most of the time, but it's motivated and it's shaped by what parents want for their children and what they want from their children. Often we get our identity from our children. Uh, ownership parenting, it's driven by what we want for our children and from our children. So the gospel teaches us, though, that our children are not our possessions, that they belong to the one who knit them in their mother's womb, who created them, them in their image. And so we are stewards. We are entrusted with their lives, but we are not alone. God is there helping us along the way. And so your identity is not found in your children, but in Christ as ambassador. And so this means, so some practical things. This means we define success differently, right? And so success for our children, success as parenting, is not about their outward performance. 
Okay, that is not success as a parent about how they're doing. Success as, as a parent is about our own personal faithfulness to represent the only one who has the able or who is able to produce good things in our children. Okay, success does, is, is not about how good they are on the soccer field or how good their grades are or what job they end up getting when they grow up. That is not success as a parent. Success as a parent is how faithful we are to represent the true king and to point our children to their need to reconcile with them. And so as ambassadors, we don't look at our children as trophies, right? We look at our children, we, we recognize as parents that really parenting is messy, often humbling. They, they often, our kids bring out the, the worst in us. And so parenting, if our children happen to, to grow up and they mature as a believer and they grow in their walk with the Lord, that's not a trophy for us. That's ultimately a trophy for God. It's a display of His glory, not ours. And so parenting is not about what we want for our children or what we want from our children. Parenting is about what God wants to do through us for Him. I would write this down. As ambassadors, we are to seek to make every encounter with our children a beautiful picture of the gracious God that they so desperately need. Let me say that again. As ambassadors, we are to seek to make every encounter with our children a beautiful picture of the gracious God that they so desperately need. Because when we fail to do that, when we exercise our authority, but we do it in such a way like we are king, and we do it with impatience and anger and frustration towards them rather than grace, grace and patience, how are they going to trust the authority? If that's how we exercise authority, we are teaching them not to trust the authority of their heavenly Father. And so we need to be careful. And again, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else in here. That every opportunity, every interaction we have with our children is an opportunity to be an ambassador, to, ambassador, to, to represent, to reflect the glorious, graceful God that they desperately need. And we've got an opportunity every single day to do that. And so our primary role as a parent is not to be an owner, is not to be a king, but is to be an ambassador to our children with a primary message of reconciliation. That they have a broken relationship that is vertical, that is with God. And because of their sinful hearts, there is a barrier that needs to be dealt with. And the good news that we need to constantly point them to is that Jesus Christ on the cross offers forgiveness. And we need to constantly point their hearts to that. And so let's pray that God would, would help us see past our kids' behavior to the condition of their hearts. Let's pray that God would draw our children to trust in Him, to be reconciled. Let's pray that, that we would see ourselves not as owners but as ambassadors. And, and let's, all, let's also let's, let's recognize that we're barely scratching the surface about this conversation.
And so uh, with that, and, and I'm running out of time here, and so I want to encourage you, come back this fall. We're going to have a, a conference with Paul Tripp again, and he's got an amazing book that's called Parenting. It's 14 Gospel Principles, and in that parenting conference, he's going to talk about some of those principles, but I would encourage you to pick up the book. Uh, I would encourage you to come back to this parenting conference that we're going to have. We're going to talk more about this. But let's pray right now that God would, would help us move in the direction that He is calling us, that we would be shaped by the gospel in our, in our parenting. Bow your heads with me. Father, we plead with you. and we, First of all, we recognize that often uh, we, we like our sovereignty and we want to control everything. And we like to control our kids, and I, I pray and I plead with you that we would recognize our role as ambassadors, that you would help us be free of the burden and the responsibility of trying to change our child's hearts, and that we would recognize that that is your role and that you love that role, and that we would, we would look to you that we would see our inability, but we would trust your ability to change our kids. And so we plead with you for their hearts that you would convict them of their sins, that you would draw them to your son, that you would help them to trust you, and that their affections would be stirred towards Christ for your glory, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> well, as we move into a, a time of communion, I would encourage you, if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, this is a time we celebrate together. If you're not yet a believer, we would encourage you to use this time to get alone with God. If you've never reconciled with God, I pray that this moment would be a moment that you would repent of sins and trust in Christ for salvation, that you would trust what he did on the cross, pays the penalty that we deserve, and that you would live your life for him. If you've got questions about salvation or questions about what we've talked about today or, or questions about the church, about baptism, about membership, please don't leave today until you get those questions answered. If you've got questions about just how to get better plugged into the life of this church, uh, please stick around. Uh, if you've got questions about orphan care, please stick around. Uh, if you need prayer, maybe this is a struggle you, you've been dealing with and, and you, you recognize that, that uh, you need to seek God's wisdom as a parent and, and you, you recognize that you need help with that, uh, I would love to pray with you during this time. And... Uh, also want to encourage you that none of there is not a perfect parent out there. I would be the first one to admit that. And so thank God for the cross. We all need it. And that's what this communion is all about. It's a reminder that there is grace. Even if you've messed up a million times as a parent, there is grace for you. And ultimately, your child's heart is not in your hands. It is in God's hands. And so let's use this time to continue to pray for our kids. After everybody's gone through the line, you can come here or in the back. We're going to stand together. We're going to worship the God that 
saves and the, the, the one who is worthy of our worship. And so I would encourage you to come as God is calling you to come.